0: if you're there in John 13, um, I want you to put your finger there and also open to Luke 22 just for a couple verses to set the background. As you know, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each carry the same story, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ from four very different viewpoints. Uh, you had Matthew who was... Uh, sort of the businessman of the group, the publican. And you have uh, Mark, who was this more kind of exciting um, fisherman of a man and and adventurer. And so it's a fast-moving, fast-paced book, a lot about the miracles of Christ. You have Luke, who's the detailed physician and gives us a whole different perspective of Christ's life. And then John, who was just so emotionally tied to Christ. And so Uh, It was the the last of the Gospels to be written, and so uh, he doesn't give all the detail that some of the others do. He sort of overarches the detail of Matthew, Mark, and Luke with the overarching theme of Christ's work in this world. And so the passage that we're going to be in in John 13, I was excited to get back to John today, and uh, the first uh, few Chapters of John, first 11 chapters or so of John, move very quickly through his ministry and life. Uh, I kind of illustrated it this way with our renovation that we did this summer in the auditorium, it was great at one point when there was no carpet in here, and um, you could just kind of do stuff and do it fast and build. And you don't have to worry about messing up carpet or chairs or anything like that. And uh, so as you prime uh, the walls to, to paint, you can just kind of go through quickly and you're not worried about the overspray and uh, you're working quickly through those things. That's kind of the way that John 1, 1 through 11 works. He is priming that very, very quickly to get us to chapter 12 and 13. Then we put a few chairs back in here and uh, carpet went back in and then we had to go back and we had to detail paint and uh, touch up in corners and do trim and add things and stain and do up here and it's much slower and you work for eight hours and you leave and you forget looking around you forget what you actually accomplished and uh, as you're going around those things and it, it's sort of sort, sort similar to that John 1 through 11 is a fast prime of his life and then it comes to a screeching halt in chapter 12 And um, uh, end of 11, beginning of 12, and it enters into the last week of Christ's ministry. And then you get into chapter 13, where we are today, and we're into the last two days of Christ's living ministry. And then we're going to see his crucifixion and his uh, resurrection. And where we're going to be in a moment, it is Thursday before the crucifixion. In fact, uh, the Passover celebrated on Friday, but the northern group of Israel, the northern tribe of Israel, actually celebrated their Passover on Thursday. And so this Thursday night, we're going to enter the upper room for the Last Supper. In a way, that was the, and Jesus being from Nazareth and Galilee, part of the northern section of Israel, his family would have celebrated their Passover on Thursday evening. And so this is that big 24-hour time period where Passover lambs are being slain and for the sins of the world. And Jesus, in a way, uh, is signifying what His work is in this world by being slain Himself during this Passover time. And so we really slow down in chapters 13 through 16 uh, it's going to give these lessons that Jesus is teaching his disciples in his final moments. And that's how important they were to John, that he dedicates a good portion of his book. To the last hours of Jesus' life. And we're going to examine those over the next few weeks. God gives uh, four monumental chapters loaded with promises for these disciples that he loved. And it certainly started with his promises, started with these disciples, but they extend through all of history, these promises. And he's going to pray later in this book for those that would believe on him to come. And he's going to extend those promises and ask. God as Father, to fulfill those promises through Himself on the cross, not just for the disciples, but for all that would believe. He prays even for us. And so what is happening here as we enter this last section of John, they have entered into this upper room, as we call it. Uh, we kind of think of it as an intimate, almost mystical moment in which Jesus is sharing these things as He ends His life and ministry on this earth. But I want to set the background for what Jesus has entered into. They are walking through Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and then he returns to Jerusalem, at which they lay palm trees down and sing Hosanna to the King. And so the disciples are pumped. They're like, here it comes. He's going to be the king. We're going to be princes. I wonder where I'm going to be in charge of. They constantly just had this triumphant kingdom mindset about Christ. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Mark wanted to be uh, ruler of where he was. And maybe Matthew wanted to go back to his hometown. Or maybe he wanted to kind of rule in Jerusalem. And uh, maybe someone wanted to go back near the Sea of Galilee and have a palace out overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And you just kind of think through their mindset. They are excited because here comes. King Jesus. We are going to rule. And Jesus slows them down and shows them why he really came to earth. In fact, we know that this is their mindset because of Luke 22. Look at verse number 24. You'll see if you have titles for sections in your Bible, you'll see verse 7 it says the upper room is prepared and uh, it talks about uh, getting the pitcher of water ready and they started the Passover. And then look at verse 24 if you would. says, And there was also a strife among them, the disciples, which of them should be counted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater... He that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is uh, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Go back, if you would, to John chapter 13, and so we have set the background for what is being discussed at this final, uh, last supper table, and we see that the disciples have said, They're thinking about Jesus ruling as king. They say, who is going to be the greatest? Who gets the most land? Who gets the most authority? Who's been the most faithful to Jesus these last three years? Who is going to get the most stuff? Who's going to rule? And Jesus says, basically, look, the Gentiles already have rulers. I don't don't need you to rule. That is not why you're here. I need you to serve. And he's going to show us that in John chapter 13. Look, if you would, in verse number 1. Says, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. That is a significant statement because of the impatience and the failures of the disciples, the overwhelming sin of the disciples, the coming betrayal of the disciples as they will run from him in his final moments. And how often these disciples just fell short. And it says that Jesus loved them all the way, as far as He could, as much as He could, to the very end. And it's an encouragement for us, because Jesus loves us to the end as well. "...and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God, and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments and was set down again. He said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater Than he that sent him, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Lord, help us now as we study your word and study your example. And we pray that we would uh, see this lived out in our own lives. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. What is happening every day in our Christian lives is that God is calling us to love. It is the theme of much of the New Testament, it is the theme often of the book of John, that Jesus tells his disciples to love. By this shall other men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one toward another. Uh, If any man have the love of the Father in him, he he loves his brother also. If a man hateth his brother or hates his brother and says he loved God, he's a liar. That's what 1 John says. It says you must love. Love, that is a sign to yourself. It's a sign to the world that you are a Christian. It is a sign to yourself that you are a Christian. It is even a proof listed in 1 John. It's a proof of your salvation that you have love to another. Jesus says, I give you the greatest commandment that you love God, that you love the Father with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, that you love God with all that you have. And the second is like unto this. The second greatest commandment is like the first and that you love one another another and it's all over the place in the new testament we are to love each other but the disciples had not gotten this message they had not gotten the purpose that christ had come to earth and jesus is going to teach them again in fact we know that as jesus comes to the end of his work here on earth says in verse 3 jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from god and he went To God, Jesus knows his life is about to end. He knows that he came from the presence, the very presence of God in the heaven, ruling and reigning over all the universe, and he's about to physically re-enter that. That had to have been, in some ways, an exciting moment for Christ. In some ways, knowing the torment that would come, and we know that the the guilt and the shame of sin that would be laid on his shoulders brought, brought in a way, pain and uh, struggle to his heart, but knowing he looked further than that, seeing the reward that was laid before him, he continued his race all the way to the end, dying for us. Now, he showed a great example of love in his dying. But notice, he doesn't say of that dying that that is the example that he's setting for his disciples though many of them would be martyred, and though many have been martyred for their love of God and for their work for Christ, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to set an example for you and go to the cross and die for you, and I want you to go die for the sins of others. That is not how we are told to express our love, though that may happen, and it may be needed at some point to preach the gospel in some land or in some place or even in our homeland, and it costs someone their life. God, Jesus is giving us an example of love Short of dying for others because we have no need to do that because Christ died for all men's sin. My death won't save anyone from their sins, but my life can be an example of Christ. How? How is it that Jesus is going to show us this example of love? This is how Christianity is put on display. The most devout of Christians do not murder people for their faith. They love people for their faith. That's a difference between Christianity and many causes or religions or purposes in which people may go to war or die uh, for their cause or kill others for their cause. Christianity, Jesus shows, I will love for my cause. I will express love beyond the way that I even can love myself. I will extend that love to you. It is not that if you do not agree or if you do not believe with me, you will die. It is that you don't agree, you don't uh, believe the same thing I do, I will love you to the place that hopefully you see the light of Christ and He works in your heart. And we manifest that love in humble expressions like this one. Now, in Jesus' day, foot washing was a necessity. Let me clarify, in our day today, it is also necessary to wash your feet. But, <laughs> but that did not end at some point. Uh, but it was an important thing in Jesus' day. In fact, of course, they mostly used the sandals as they walked about and they were uh, doing these different things. But it's significant what happens here in this moment because it not only tells us of the heart of Christ, it tells us of the heart of his disciples and how that they had ignored something very basic and even customary in their day. They would walk these dirty, uh, dusty streets in that area of the world, and their feet would be, I'm sure, if it was muddy that day or it had rained recently, kind of even clawed to their feet, kind of disgusting. And they sat different. They did not sit at a table like we might, sitting down to eat a meal with our feet underneath of us. In their day and in their custom, they reclined at a meal. Meals took, especially supper, took a very long amount of time. And I wanted to illustrate this this morning. I may not, I may not do it. I was going to, I may have these two guys here do it. I'm not going to make them. I thought about making them do it. But they're brothers and they smell each other's feet all the time probably. But if you're to imagine these two handsome men that would come up to the front, imagine that it's more like here and they would, this would be the table and you would sit and recline on what was almost like a couch or a pillow and they would sit and you would lay your feet up on top of that. And as you would, someone else would be laying the other way, right? And so your head is most, eventually, you can try to put head to feet, head to feet, but eventually somebody's head is near somebody's feet. (laughs) And so it was important. As they entered into this supper, it was customary to sit and to wash your feet or have someone wash your feet for you, and then they would do this. Now, Jesus washed their feet. Which means, in my opinion, I don't believe that their feet had been washed. I don't think that Jesus washed their feet after they had already done it and there was no need. He didn't do it symbolically. I think he did it because there was a need. And there was no, nothing in the text tells us that it had already been done. And so Jesus looks around and watches them arguing and saying, I will be the greatest. That's what Luke 22 says. I will be the greatest. I will rule. And, and in a way, you wonder if as they walked in, they, there would always be a a, a a container of water by the door, and a basin and a towel. And in some homes, not as well-to-do homes, you would wash your own feet. If you were in somewhere where they were well-to-do, they'd have a servant that would wash your feet for you. And as they walk in, they don't even stop to wash their own feet, let alone to wash someone else's feet. And it's almost as if they are vying for Jesus' approval. And they say, well, if I wash somebody else's feet, I'm definitely not going to be the ruler of Jerusalem in Jesus' kingdom. If Jesus sees me being a servant to that man, he's going to think, well, if Matthew washes John's feet, then John's going to be elevated and in Jesus' mind. And it's almost as though I will not wash feet because if I do, I may lose my place in this kingdom. It's almost shown there that that is their heart, and Christ looking around, though He could have lectured them and taught them and given them a lesson as He had done many times before, and obviously it hadn't fully taken effect in their lives. He had told them over and over to love and to serve. And Jesus quietly and calmly looks around as they're sitting at this table with dirty feet because they would not humble themselves because they wanted to be the greatest. They were so consumed with their own self-interest that Jesus... God of the universe, who it says had come from heaven, had come from the presence of God and was about to return. This is the moment someone should have washed Jesus' feet. He's about to enter into this last moment of his life and die for the sins of the world, the creator God of the universe. Someone get up and wash his feet. But Jesus says, I'm going to teach you an even greater lesson. It's not about where you will rule, it's not about your self-interest, it's not about your concern, it's not about any of those things. Who's going to be the greatest among you is the one that will serve the most. Who that will be the highest is the one that's going to be the least. And Carefully, cautiously, quietly, Jesus stands up and the verse tells us that he takes the water, he pours it into a basin. He takes off his outer garment, and if he was dressed in a customary way, that meant literally he had a towel or a, uh, an undergarment wrapped around his waist, and that was it. So imagine for a moment, this Jesus, this one that they say is going to be king, is now kneeling before them, shirtless, with a towel wrapped around his undergarment, kind of extended out as though it would be kind of clipped in, and he would wash feet and then pull the towel in and use another part of the towel, and he's standing shirtless, humble before them, washing their feet. That's why this would be a big deal to them, and that's why Peter reacts the way that he does. No, no, you can't do this. You won't wash... Now, notice Peter doesn't say, you can't wash my feet, let me wash yours. He says, you can't wash my feet, almost as if to say... Make somebody else wash our feet. And Jesus teaches them something important about love. He says, you do not list love with your words. You love with your actions. You do not just love by giving, though that is important. You love by doing. You do not just love from where you are. You love from a different position, by lowering yourself. By doing the most menial of tasks, but the most necessary. After 33 years on this earth, maybe the culmination of Jesus' humility is here. As he kneels before these men who argue about where they will rule the world. And he washes their feet. I want to show you just four quick things about love that are given here in the text. Look at verse number one, if you would. The first one, number one. The love of Christ... Is very simply the love of Christ is stated it is told to us says in verse 1 now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should not that he should depart out of this world unto the Father having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end and Jesus his hour knows his hours coming he knows what he's about to face in a few moments he's going to go out and pray in the garden and knowing Uh, that that Judas is going to betray him. And in that moment, with all of the emotion that is going into that moment, Jesus is about to die himself. Now, we have lost, uh, I have lost two very close people uh, to me. And to be honest, in those moments, it is very difficult. Even, Even when someone just that I love is passing away, it's hard to think about Others. is hard to think about anything but what you're experiencing what you're going through. Jesus himself is about to die, and yet he turns and he thinks of others. He's about to die for them, but before he does, he's willing to stoop and clean them. His love is stated. Why? Why did He do this? Very simply, verse 1 just tells us, because He loved them unto the end. Now that word, that that phrase there, unto the end, doesn't just mean simply the timing of the end of His ministry, though it it does mean that too. To the nth degree might be a way that we say that today. They loved them. He loved them fully. There was no extent of His love. There was no end of His love. There was no place that His love would not take Him for these men and for us. There is no end of his love. There is no position he would take where he say, you've rejected me enough times, you have failed me enough times, you have made me look, you, you have looked silly enough times in my presence, you have argued enough in my presence, no more. But as they argue about who's going to be the greatest, he says, my love goes much further than your failure. My love is shown even in my humility in the, in the, in the most undeserving to the weakest, to the most selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed disciples. While they're devouring and biting each other with their lips and with their words, Jesus looks around and serves with the most menial of tasks. And he loves us as well. He's involved with the most meaningless task and moment of our life. He's involved with even uh, seemingly the most unimportant moments of our lives. And this is a good example of how to disciple, isn't it? How to teach. He doesn't just tell them, but He does. It's a good example of how we could disciple others, how we can teach others. It's one thing to say, you should do this. It's another to say, I will do this to show you how to do this. Disciplers, as we are called to be of other people, we are to disciple people from all nations and teach them what it means to be a Christian. Well, how do we do that? By serving by being humble, by lowering ourselves. This is a good example of how to parent, to show our children, not just to simply tell them what they should do, but to show this is how you love. Um, In a book called The Love of God, it says this, of uh, God's love. It says, His love, no end or measure knows, no change can turn its course eternally God's love flows the same from one eternal source constantly flowing outward never retracting what is our love like today it's stated that the love of Christ is like this always pouring out to the end what is our love like does it pour out constantly to the end on our children on our spouse on our co-worker on our unsaved friend, on our neighbor, constantly out, never needing to come in. We say, how do I have an unending source like that? The love of Christ being poured into your life through His Word should pour out to others. As a second point, love first is just simply stated, but I want you to notice the second point, and it's significant, love is rejected. I kind of wonder why this kind of messes with the flow of the text, doesn't it? Verse 1 flows right into verse 3. It says that he loved them to the end and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid aside his garments. But verse 2 is just kind of like a, a, a break check here. All of a sudden, what is going on? Notice what it says. Supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. In the midst of Christ's example of love, it reminds us that some reject his love. Why mention this here? Why would John say this? And very simply, I think it's because of the contrast. Because of how Judas was a hater the way that Jesus was a lover judas looked to christ and when christ judas was so consumed with his own self-interest and when judas did not get what he wanted when judas did not have his interest filled by christ when jesus did not do as judas wanted it created a hatred of christ in judas heart it created a disdain for the work of christ and the labor of Christ. Remember, Judas is the one that a few weeks ago we studied in the text where it said the woman crushed that box or opened that box and poured out all ointment. And Judas says, why couldn't this have been sold and money given to the poor? And his heart was revealed And the scripture says at his core, Judas was a thief because it says that he had taken over and over. Evidently, he thought, unknown, taken from uh, the bag that Jesus' finances were in. But of course, Jesus knew that. And even knowing that, He loved these to the end. But Judas rejected the love of God. Why? Because he did not get what he wanted from God. Why is it that we struggle to love in a Christ-like way sometimes? Very simply, because sometimes loving the way that Christ did does not reward us. It doesn't give us what we want. These disciples, as they're having their feet washed by the Holy One of the universe... Did they get to rule because of that? No. Did did they get anything special because of it? No. And eventually, they're going to get it. They're going to understand eventually because they're going to go out and they're going to serve in the same way Christ said. And how were they rewarded? Some were crucified. Some were uh, riven through with a stake. Some were burned alive. Some were mistreated and died for their faith. Why? Because they grasped what the love of Christ meant. It did not need reward. The love of Christ is reward enough in itself, so then I can love others. But often we reject the love of God in our lives. We reject loving like Christ's love because we don't think that the reward is enough. We don't think, well, if I love that person, nobody's going to see that. Or if I love, show love toward this person, they're just going to abuse that. If I show love to that person's physical need, they're just going to become needy and I'm going to enable their need. And there's some concern with those things, but you don't see Christ really even speak of that. He loved with no need for anything in return. And often we reject the love of Christ for the same reason Judas did, because it does not serve our self-interest. Let's look at number three very quickly. Love is rejected, but then number three, love is shown. The love of God is stated, it's just told to us in verse number one, Then we see it's rejected in verse number two. And now we're going to see how is this love shown? He gives us an example. and We cannot die, as we mentioned earlier, for the sins of others like Christ did, but we can do this. And there are some churches that I know of and you may know of too that actually almost use foot washing as a third ordinance of the church. The Bible doesn't teach it that way, but it's an interesting practice and it may be a a good humbling practice for us. We don't necessarily physically go wash each other's feet anymore because there's not a physical need for that for the most part, but we do have needs, and sometimes it may need, I need to lower myself before someone else to serve their need, to show them the love of Christ. It says he came forth from God and was going back to God, and there's this statement of his love, but then he shows it. They're eating into or they're getting into this Passover meal and no one has stepped up to wash feet. No one. What is the love of Christ that we love not? Verse John three eighteen says, Love not in word only, but in what? But in deed. And Jesus says, I love you not just with my words, but in my deeds. What is the overarching thing that we learn here? Is it that we need a towel and some water and when people come to our house, we scrub their feet? I don't suggest doing that because they may not come back next time. (laughs) But what is it? It is finding even the most humble and subtle and lowly of needs and seeking to fill that need, inspired by the love of Christ. Who do you know in life right now that has a need? It may be physical. It may be spiritual. You may know somebody that's struggling with their spiritual life, and for you as a mature Christian, you're thinking, how... Why are they still struggling with that need? Why have they not grown past that? Why are they not a better Christian than that? Why aren't they serving in a better way? Well, I see a need. Do I take that person under wing and say, hey, would you, would you study God's Word with me? Would you pray with me? Can I, Can we get together and and you may have to condescend yourself and step back to a place in your Christian life that feels immature, but this person has a spiritual need. So I'm going to step back to the place where they are, and I'm going to walk with them through that very elementary of spiritual needs. I'm going to walk with them through that. They have an emotional need, and I'm going to condescend to their emotional need and help try to strengthen them. I'm going to find what it is in their life. Jesus saw a need, And he didn't just command that the need needed to be taken care of. He took care of it himself. There's needs even within our own church. Where do you see a need in our church? It's very easy, I think, to find certain places that we have needs physically. We have needs spiritually. We have needs within certain ministries. It's easy to point at a need and say, there is a need here that needs addressed. But it's another thing to step in and say, I see this need And I will address it. It's not in my forte. It's not in my portfolio of skills. But I'll try. (laughs) I'll help take care of this in some way or another. And Jesus finds a need and he lowers himself to fill the need. I wonder, how often do we pick how we serve based on our preference and not on the need? This was not Jesus' preference, I'm sure. This is not probably the thing that he wanted to spend the Last Supper doing. But it's the need that he saw. And so it's the need that he filled. How often do we try to serve God based on what our preference is compared to what the need may actually be? Peter, looking at him, let's look at this exchange very quickly that Peter had with him. Peter says to him, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. That word never means, it's sort of got an infinite tone to it. You will never, ever, under any circumstance, never will you wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, he that is washed, or excuse me, uh, it says, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now, don't be confused. Jesus is not saying, if I don't wash your feet, you're not saved. Jesus is emphasizing here, if I don't wash your feet, if you don't take part of this, You're not one with me. You don't have the same heart that I do. You don't understand the lesson that I'm trying to teach. You're not going to have part of the ministry that I want to have here in this world. And Jesus says, if you don't let me humble myself for you, then you don't understand that I'm trying to teach you to humble yourself for others. And if you don't understand that you need to be humble, you don't have part of my ministry. You can't love the way that I do. And Peter does take it as, well, what is he saying? Do I need to be washed for salvation? And Peter says, wash all of me. Not just my feet, but my hands, my head. Give me a bath, is what he says. If if this is going to help me spiritually, wash everything. Notice how Jesus addresses that. He says, he that is washed, needeth not save save to wash his feet, but is clean every way. Meaning he's completely clean. And he says to Peter, "You, you are clean. He says, you're saved. I'm not trying to tell you that. I'm trying to teach you my mind and my heart. Because Peter misunderstood this here. Wouldn't it be assuring for Jesus to come into your life and say, hey, you're saved. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. It would be great to have an assurance directly from God. And that's what Peter gets here. And Jesus says, you're saved. Not all of you. Because it says that he knows that Judas is about to betray him. But he says, this is not something you do for your salvation. It's something you do to show your heart toward me. It's something that you do to understand what that ministry really is. You don't love to gain salvation. You love to show salvation. That's what Jesus is teaching. He says, if you don't take part in this, you you don't have part of my ministry. I wonder what Jesus would say of us this morning as individuals and as a church. You're saved, but are you taking part in this? Have you lowered yourself? Have you humbled yourself yourself? Have you humbled yourself below children, your own children, or toward those that you minister to in this church? Have you humbled yourself to help the immature Christian? Have you humbled yourself to help the lost? Have you found the need and then filled it? Jesus says, you don't don't understand this now, but one day you will. And we know that he did. Because in 1 Peter, uh, Peter goes on, he says that, for as much as you know that you were this, this is Peter writing in his book, he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your Father, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter goes on, he understands this, and he says one day as he's writing, he says, Look, Jesus didn't buy you with silver and gold and riches and elevated status. He I remember arguing about who's going to have the most gold and who's going to rule where. But Jesus didn't save us by buying us with riches. Jesus saved us with his blood. And Jesus saved us by condescending and being humble before us and being a humble servant to us. And when he writes it, we understand that eventually Peter gets this and he lives that life because as he writes, he says, don't worry about corruptible things, silver, gold, position, status. Jesus died and he humbled himself and gave his blood. He says later in chapter 2, he bore in our sins in his own body on the cross. He understood finally, eventually he gets it because he saw the sacrifice of Christ and instead of saying Lord you'll never wash my feet Peter then says I'll wash others the way that you have washed me and let's finish with the last thing today love has been stated Jesus love was rejected Jesus love is shown and then finally we're going to see that his love is commanded because he doesn't just show them he goes a little further And in verse 12, it says, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that sent is greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Jesus very plainly says, do this same thing. He shows them, but then he commands them. And that takes it from, wow, Jesus really went above and beyond. Think of the humility of Christ in washing their feet, Now he puts the responsibility on these disciples, and he has placed the responsibility on us as well. This is not something that we look at and say, wow, Jesus was incredible, but, you know, Jesus was God. This is what he was doing as an example. He was completely disciplined. He was perfect and sinless. And sometimes we look at this example, or maybe we look at the lives of other Christians that we think are kind of the super Christians, the very, very Christians the not-so-normal Christians, but Jesus is saying this to all of his disciples, and it's taught all throughout the New Testament, that we are to then do the same. And it is a command. It is not a preference. This is not something that secondary a secondary level. This is not like master's degree Christianity. This is the basic element of our Christian lives, is that Jesus says, love. How do you love? You serve. Well, how do you serve? By humbling yourself, becoming obedient to my word, the way that Philippians says that Jesus became obedient. He thought it not robbery. He didn't think to hold on or grasp to be equal with God. Jesus is God. But it says that he didn't hold on to that lordship and being God of the universe so tightly that he would not let go of it to become a humble servant and become obedient to death, even the death of the cross. As an example for us, why is it that we sometimes hold on to so tightly? We're not even God, and we don't have the nature of God, but sometimes we hold so tightly to what we want, to our status, to our prestige. When Jesus says, humble yourselves. He says, Do this. He says, If you do these things, happy, joyful, you will be blessed. And he asked that question Is a servant greater than his Lord? What do our lives say this morning? If you were to ask yourself as we finish, if I were to come through and say, Just pass the microphone around. Are you greater than Jesus? Are you greater than God this morning? <laughs> Are you more powerful than God? Well, we'd say, no, 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 no. As we hand the microphone around, there is no way. I am not greater than God. I am not better than God. But then we pass around the mic and say, have you acted greater than God? Have you been unwilling to humble yourself the way that the God of this universe humbled himself to serve and to love others? Well, Yes. I guess I have treated myself as though the servant is greater than the master. There is something that I'm unwilling to do. There are some things that I'm unwilling to say for fear of being embarrassed. There, are, there is someone that I think that God has laid on my heart that I want to help teach, but I'm a little afraid to approach them about that because I don't want to be rejected or embarrassed. When Jesus started washing feet and that action was rejected, Peter says, no, scowls at him. Someone may scowl at your effort of love. Jesus continued to wash. He continued to serve. And I wonder this morning, does your life say, who is greater, servant or our master?